Uh, we're starting a new series today uh, it called Desert Feasts. Uh, and as we were doing all this, I thought of something that's not in my notes. This is bonus time. Uh, but there's a psalm, Psalm 78, that tells a whole story of the people of Israel. Uh, but throughout, it actually shares some of the emotions behind the people. Uh, and there's this time where the people of Israel are in the desert. Uh, God's rescued them and saved them, and they're all out there. And there's this question they ask. It's Psalm uh, 78, uh, verse 19, I believe. Yeah, it says this. And it says that they spoke against God. They're out there in this dry desert land, and they spoke against God, meaning like they made an accusation, like a counterpoint to God. They're debating with him. And they ask, they say this, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? And they ask this to God over and over again. Can he really spread a table for us in the wilderness? Uh, there, uh, the book of Numbers should really be called Wilderness. That's, you know, one of my extra bonus things of nerdiness. But it should really be called the Wilderness. They're just wandering around in the desert. And they're asking this question, can God actually prepare a big spread for us out here? Can he meet us in this dry, desolate, wild, and wasteland? Uh, and it's not just can God feed us. Uh, this, this, the language, prepare a table, prepare a feast, is really what it's talking about. Can God make a party for us, an abundant life in these dry, desolate places? And so when we were, as elders, began praying about this year of, oh, having a, uh, a year where we focus on joy and satisfaction, and that became more and more clear to us, one of my first thoughts was, we need to do a series on the, the feasts that God commands in the book of Leviticus. And I know, like, I'm saying stuff that most preachers like, we've got to do a series on the book of Leviticus. But that's what we're going to do. It's the nerdiest thing we've tried to do in a long while. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. But the reason it's so special is because that's really God's answer to, can he create an abundant life for people in the desert, in the wilderness? And a lot of us are in those seasons of life where it doesn't feel like there's enough, enough time, enough money, enough things, enough energy enough of God to actually sustain us. Like there's these big, can God actually prepare an abundant life for me in Los Angeles? Can God really meet me and dwell with me in the midst of this thing that's happening in my life? And what, what we see in these feasts that God ordains uh, is uh, him organizing their life, their calendars, their schedules, around them meeting with him in the desert, having this abundant feast. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. Uh, God commands these Israelites to celebrate, to intentionally rest. Uh, he taught them how to gather together. He taught them to like engage in all of their senses. Uh, it's a really, really wonderful thing. And so I think as we engage in this, we're going to see Christ uh, connect with us uh, in rhythms of our life that we might not think of. Uh, we'll see his character get played out in these things that he commands. Uh, it's going to be really, really great. Uh, so if you don't mind, uh, again, saying something that you rarely hear in church, please turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus chapter 23, uh, what's been happening is Moses, uh, along with Aaron and Miriam, uh, classic nepotism, like three siblings just running this whole 
mass group of people, but they've, they've been like organizing and leading these people in worship and injustice and all these things, but God's also been giving them tons of commands. Uh, the Bible is so long because it's not just 10 commands, you know, like it looks good on the side of a, you know, church building, but it's a lot, you know, and the book of Leviticus is just law after law explaining what to eat, what not to eat, the whole system for justice, the whole system of sacrifices, how to build a tabernacle, and it gets really repetitive, but in the middle of it all uh, is Leviticus chapter 23, which comes after all of this stuff about sacrifices and things that they're supposed to do, uh, and it's God really commanding. This is the part of the Bible that is called the law. And this is what it says in 23 verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as a sacred assembly. He goes on to say, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work, whatever, wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. And then verse four, he says, these are the Lord's appointed festivals and the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim in the appointed times. And then he goes on to describe seven festivals that we'll spend time talking about over the next several weeks. But what, what happens in these verses is, a, is an odd thing, I think, for our ears. Uh, in the midst of all of these rules on how to behave and things like that, God says, now these are my appointed parties. Uh, these are the important celebrations. And he doesn't give advice on like, hey, you know, you should take a break now and then. It's really fun if you rest up and uh, you should think about taking your kids camping. Hey, there's some old stories. You know, have a turkey dinner or something like that. God isn't offering a Pinterest board of like intentionality. It's actually, the words are pretty uh, emphatic. These are my appointed festivals. I've said and I've dictated, these are my parties. Uh, we love to throw parties. Even as a family, we love to throw parties. And there are our parties, you know? Ain't no party like a Watson party. And what God is saying is, this is my party. These are my set out parties. And I've, and I've set them down. They belong to me. And then he also says that you're to proclaim them. Uh, that, that the way that we celebrate, the festivals that he's about to outline are themselves a proclamation. Uh, a proselytizing, a preaching, an evangelizing of who God is and what he's done. That by the way that he's going to command these people to party, he will and we will, these people will proclaim the very nature of God and what he does and how he operates. He also calls them, uh, many of your translations might have instead of sacred assemblies, convocations. Anybody go to convocations recently? You're about to have one, right, Noel? I don't know if they call it that way in high school, but you know, upper you know, levels, graduate schools, you have convocation. And it's a pretty uh, important moment. People gather together, all of these families, people from all over the world get together in this one room so that they can be you know, declared with a new degree, a new status, a new ability to perform something because they've done all of this work and now they are, you know, doctors, lawyers, musicians, like it's declared over you. You are now a bachelor in science or whatnot. 
This is the same, like that is taken from these kinds of words in the Old Testament. It's that, that convocation is the same when it says sacred assemblies. It's a gathering together of God's people to declare who they are and what they're called into, what their vocation is. He says, so these, these parties, these festivals are pretty important. That's what I would say to these people in the desert which is kind of they're, they're surviving off this bread that comes from the heavens, or it's like dew bread. I don't know how that works. They're drinking water from rocks, and God says, here are the parties. And they might just be thinking, oh, we need to know how to survive. We just need to know how to get the bare minimum of the hierarchy of needs met. We're just trying to build that bottom layer. And God is saying, oh, no. This is how you are to party. And it's, and it's me telling you to do these things. They tell, these parties tell their story, the story of God in their lives. These, these parties form an entire culture. They form a family. Each family has weird Christmas things, right, that we do, and it somehow is an expression of a family. You know, like a family where each child takes a turn. That's a culture of turn-making, of order, of structure, of organization. Other families are like, just open it up, right? These are cultural statements. These festivals are cultural statements that build them and perpetuate them. Each of the festivals, it talks about them doing things in their own dwelling. It's for each household. All of the people within a compound or, or collection of tents, they're to celebrate these things together. The festivals are communal, they're society-wide. Uh, they have incredible implications even over their own you know, national security. It's pretty bizarre. Uh, they each come with a specific cadence on when to be observed. Like as we read this, it'll be like, on the first month of the 14th day, you have to do this. Meaning, these aren't parties that you do when you feel like it, or these aren't parties when everything's kind of lined up correctly, you go for it. These are parties where God is saying, I'm actually in charge of your calendar. The days of your life, the, the ordering of them and how it works, the seasons themselves are from God, for God, and we get wrapped up in it. These are the festivals. I think I hit all the things. Oh, it also includes kids. Kids are part of it. Old people, young people, it's everyone. And one of the shocking things about these festivals is it doesn't look uh, real neat and tidy. You know, sometimes we, we've kind of bought into maybe a, an Eastern kind of view of spirituality that it's a private, uh, solemn, stoic expression. Like to have worship means to have that. These are actually, many of them, rambunctious occasions. Uh, and the kids are all wrapped up on it. But all of these festivals overall are intentionally designed to create rest and to create worship, like at the same time. That's what these festivals are about, about meeting God to remember who they are, where they came from, what God is even doing in the mundane parts of their lives. Some of these are about deep satisfaction that would last for months, weeks, days, and I think that this whole like ordering your life around God, meeting us in the wilderness with these high times, uh, is a foreign concept to us. 
We take trips. Uh, we have air miles. We take little excursions and day trips in the south of Southern California. Uh, we know how to do logistics on where people need to be. We know how to lay out calendars and organize all of our days. Our calendar is absurd. We have five lines. It's color-coordinated for each child and where they're supposed to be. And there's these little blackout spots where it's like, we have no idea how we're getting that person to that place. And we're just going to like hope that the sea parts and they get where they're supposed to get. We know how to do all of those things. But we don't know how to do festivals. We don't know how to do pilgrimage. We don't know how to do worship with our calendars. For example, we don't sit down in front of you know, May or June and look at those four weeks and those dates and think, how am I going to live out this calendar and know God in all of my days? Like, we don't, I mean, maybe I, me only, you all do that. You know, we're about to start the summer months, and we'll be all over the place. People will be going all these different places, and I just want to go out on a limb and say, I don't think that in all of our planning, we've sat down and thought, what's the best way for me to worship God as I travel? Where are the best places? How should I orient my vacation days that I might know God and remember his whole story? We don't sit there as we book our flights and pick our seats thinking, how will I meet the living God in these travels? We don't wonder, how will we make sure that in the midst of this entire time of rest and this all-inclusive resort or whatever, how am I going to ensure that I know God's grace while I'm resting, while I'm on vacation? And I just wonder if that's, because we don't really ask those questions, if that's how we as a society are spending more money and time than we've ever spent before on leisurely activities, on vacations, on travel. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We have more vacation days than anybody in any society ever in the history of the world. Like the Western world, we figured out days off, you know? Especially in Australia, like they really have it. I think they get seven months off and then they work for four. It's incredible. <laughs> but even in Australia and even here, we're, while we have all of that going for us, we remain incredibly burned out at levels we've never seen before in the history of humanity. We remain tired. We take vacations, we have personal days, but our souls are weary. But here, God in the desert is commanding his people to obey his commands, telling them to come and enter into these rhythms of rest for emotional, spiritual, physical health, for individuals, for families, for the whole of society, rest and worship combined. Um, so that's why we're going to study this. Not because, just to say from the out front, like, I don't think we need to, like, to be a faithful Christian, you need to celebrate the, the festival of booths, you know, and you're like, I don't even know what that is. The reason you don't know what that is, is because you don't have to do that to be saved, to be redeemed, to be part of God's family. So that's, I'm not going to say that, but I am going to say there's some principles, the story that these festivals tell, invite us into that kind of deep, satisfied satisfying rest. And in all of these festivals, you know, Jesus stood up and he says, I fulfilled the law. Like, I am the law. And he's talking about these parties too, that Jesus has fulfilled the commanded parties. So we're going to see Jesus at the center of all of these festivals. Um, sound good? You have no choice. Yeah. 
awesome, got carried away. The first one is Passover and unleavened bread. Passover and unleavened bread, it's this combo thing. And so what we'll do today is I'll explain what this festival was, like what it meant, where the story came from, uh, how it uh, is important, and then how Jesus fulfills it. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23, just continuing on, just so you, you know, don't have to take my word for it, you can see for yourself. In chapter 23, verse 5, it says, The Lord's Passover began at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do not do any regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do not do any regular work. That is the festival of Passover. It doesn't give us a whole lot because we're supposed to know what the festival of Passover is all about, which is really in Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read uh, quite a bit of it, but this is when the Passover happens. And ironically, uh, you might be familiar with Seder meals and, you know, lambs, and especially in California, there's always that during the Passover season, which is the week of Easter, all of our grocery stores are filled with, you know, matzo things, and Trader Joe's gets transformed into Passover essentials. And we're like, ah, oh, all of this meal must symbolize something. You know, each aspect must symbolize something. Ironically, the Passover meal is the thing that they did in the beginning. And so I'm going to read that. Uh, it's in Exodus chapter 12. Aren't you guys excited to do nerd stuff? I mean, I am. You might not be. Uh, Exodus chapter 12. And this comes after 500 years of bondage, slavery, disaster. Uh, they were so like put down as a people that uh, to be alive was to be a crime because when the child was born, they were supposed to be killed. Uh, Moses is a living crime of like uh, a rescued, saved child that ends up in the palace. Uh, he's a crime, uh, a criminal before he even commits murder. Uh, when he does, trying to seek justice for himself, he becomes a fugitive in the desert for 40 years. And then there's this burning bush calling out to him and God saying, I've seen the people, I've heard their cries, I know what's going on, and I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to pull them out of that bondage and that slavery. Moses goes to the Pharaoh, uh, his stepbrother, and he says, hey, let my people go. We want to go worship. Little known fact, all they wanted to do was go out into the desert and have a worship festival, like a burning man. And, uh, and, what, and Pharaoh's like, no, never. You're not allowed. I need them. They're, they're, you know, they're working for me. Then there's these plagues that happen, escalating uh, terrible things. Uh, and then finally, it comes to the, the last plague, where the tension is so high. The whole situation is this powder keg of what is going to happen. It's a political powder keg because they have this massive policy. Their whole society is based off of the Egyptians using the Israelites for labor. Uh, there's a social intensity because each plague is building up worse and worse ramifications for all of society. It's a religious crisis because each plague is confronting each of the gods of Egypt, and over and over again, it looks like maybe the god of Moses is the true god, and all of these other things are just 
you know, have big buildings, but there's nothing in them. And so it's this intense moment, and the people now of Israel are hungry for freedom. Before, they were like, we're just working here, crying out to God, he doesn't hear us. Now, with all this Moses stuff, they're like, we have to have freedom, and God must deliver. Something has to give, and that's what's at stake. And so the people are waiting for the final thing that's really going to get them out, and we see what it's going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 12, and it's a meal, which is surprising. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. So he orients their calendar. This moment of redemption is your first month now and forever. The first month of your year. So tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one of their, with their nearest neighbors, having taken into account the number of people there are. Uh, here, it's, it's, I think it's God gets into meal planning. You need a lamb. Each, body, each person needs a lamb. Each household needs a lamb. If you can't have a lamb, you need to get together with your neighbors to share a lamb. And uh, you need to think about how many people are coming. I love it. God cares. He also says uh, this. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats, but take care of them until the 14th day of the 10th month when the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Here, God is also very concerned with the choiciest of meats. And I understand we have vegetarians and vegans here, so you're just going to have to, like, bear with me. I'm sorry. He's describing, like, you have to, like, not just get a goat, not just get a sheep, but get, like, the best one that, that is going to be the choiciest, the fattest, the best. It's got to be this age, it has to be this level of maturity, and it has to be without defect. And part of it is this aspect of God wants you and wants these people to, to go out on faith and use that goat that they've been saving for a long time and to, and to eat it and to sacrifice it. The other part of it is, is God wants this meal to be good. He goes on. They, they, they're supposed to slaughter this animal at twilight, and then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. This is a pretty gruesome part. They slaughter the goat, they take the blood, they put it on all of the doorsteps and the posts of their home, and that's what they're supposed to do. And then that same night, they're supposed to eat the meal, eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. He goes, do not eat the meat raw or boiled in meat, but roast it over fire with the head and the legs and the organs. Now God is telling them how to be chefs. He's like, don't boil this meat. I mean, for real. It's God's word. <laughs> do not boil meat. Uh, he's saying, no, get some coals, get some wood, roast this thing, roast it, uh, put herbs on it. Like, put it on a spit and, like, let it turn. I just want you to imagine that there were, at this time, hundreds of thousands of Jewish families spread out in these slavery ghettos, and uh, God is telling them, you have to have this massive barbecue. 
So much so that the smell of like, you guys know the smell of roasted meats, filling the air, filling the society, everywhere, always, God is making this incredible aroma of barbecue. Again, I'm sorry, vegetarians. And that's what he wants them to do. And they have to roast it and they do that. And then he says this, do not leave any until the morning. If some of it is left till the morning, you must burn it. No leftovers, just a feast. And it's not that God doesn't like leftovers. You know, Jesus, bread and wine, or the bread and fishes, lots of leftovers that day. It's not, it's just because of this next part. Uh, This is how you're supposed to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, with the staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. He's describing that I want you not just to have this amazing meal, but I want you to be eating it ready for freedom. Uh, When it says tucking in their cloak, having their sandals on, they're saying you need to eat packed and ready to walk out the door because this is my Passover. I'm going to redeem you, liberate you. You're going to go. So eat ready. Uh, Eat with this expectation that bondage is almost up. Eating with this confidence, with this hope. Dress yourself ready for a new life. Uh, Several years ago, 2012, in the London Olympics, Anthony Davis, uh, may the Lakers rest in peace. Uh, They're losing now. You guys don't know. You only care about Steph Curry. Anyway, (laughs) Anthony Davis was this young person. He was was just finished his senior year of college. He had this amazing uh, national championship run, player of the year. He was awesome. He was amazing. He was chosen to be with all these other NBA stars in the Olympics, but he rode the bench like he was at the end of the bench. He was a seven foot tall water boy. Like that was glamorized, that was him. He didn't, and that was game after game, you know, Kobe Bryant would be like dominating the game with LeBron and Carmelo Anthony, all these other players, and he was just on the edge of the bench. But then one game, because they were so far ahead, they're like, we'll put this guy in. We'll put Anthony Davis in. But here's what, this horrifying moment. He was in his jumpsuit and he took his jacket off and he had no jersey on, which then ended up being this technical foul of this person wasn't ready to get into the game because he didn't expect to get in the game. He's like, I'm never gonna play. Look at these people. And that's why God is saying, no, I want you to eat. I want you to be prepared. He's commanding them to eat with expectation that they're about to be called into the start of a journey that ends in redemption, that ends in freedom. This is what the apostle Peter is talking about when he says, gird up your loins, prepare your minds for action, set your sights on the hope that is coming. Be ready. And that's what happened. In verses 12 through 13, it says, on that same night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. The blood, though, will be a sign for you on the houses that you, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then it says in verse 29, just to skip ahead uh, briefly, it says, then at midnight, they did all the things. That's what the verses are that I'm skipping. Moses repeats it to the people. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of all livestock as well. 
Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during that night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And then it talks about how Pharaoh summons Moses and says, get out of here. And then they have to pack up and leave. That's why they have all this bread that's unleavened. They're not waiting for the bread to rise. They're not even putting yeast in it. It's just crackers, and they're on the run. It's like Limbus bread if you're a Lord of the Rings person. They just pack it up nice and neatly, and they're on the run into the desert, into the Red Sea, where God parts the Red Sea. They walk across it, and then Pharaoh, in his anger and his armies, go into the sea. The waves crash down on him, and they are completely liberated. And they sit there on the sides of the riverbank, and Miriam starts singing this song in Exodus chapter 15. And then in verse 13, she says this, and she's leading all of the people in this song, and she says to God, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling place. And this is what every year they're commanded to do on the first month of the year, their year that starts with this. They're supposed to gather together, have this feast, eat it in that way, followed by seven days of fasting, of just eating unleavened bread, not crunchy bread, not airy bread, not like soft, warm bread that you could dip something into, just this crackery bread, remembering over and over again, resting, not doing any work, that God is the Redeemer. It's the feast that reminds them that God is the Redeemer. And this is a word that God uses over and over again through the book of Exodus. I will redeem you. I am your redeemer. And for us, that, it's now this very religious word, redeemer, redemption. For the ancient world, it was a common term. Used, it's a, the Hebrew is goel. It's this common word for kinsman protector or family champion. That every family, every household, every extended family had one person whose job it was to sacrifice and care for everybody else. Uh, They were to enter into all of these situations. Three big ones kept coming up. One was to avenge shed blood. Someone is murdered, someone is destroyed, someone is stolen away. And it's the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman protector's job to go out there and rescue the one that was stolen, to, to enact justice, to ensure that justice happened. The other is, the other situation was when someone was, a family member got into intense debt or they lost their land or they themselves were put into indentured servitude. It was the the goal, the, the kinsman's protector. It's their job to go and pay whatever price it is to get that person out of indentured servitude, to get that land back. And then the third was to be a person who makes others heir. So if you have this huge family with lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, and then one of them, uh, the the father dies or the parents dies, now they're orphans, and they're not going to inherit anything. It's the kinsman's job to go and bring them into their household, declare everything that they have is theirs. They now get a seal. They get the stamp. They're now heirs. They receive this inheritance from this kinsman person that nobody goes without having that kind of inheritance, to make people heirs. And all three of those acts require, as you can imagine, intense 
uh, work. Lots of loss, lots of uh, intensity to fight against threats, poverty, injustice, and it always came at high costs. Required lots of effort. It demanded so much self-sacrifice. So when God says to the people of Israel, while they're in bondage, and he says, I am your redeemer, he's calling to mind this kind of person and saying, I'm it for you. And his redemption is so much bigger than what we might imagine. It's comprehensive. There are these science, silenced, voiceless people, and he's going to redeem them and give them a voice. Uh, They've experienced all sorts of injustice. And it says here that on Passover, what happens is God actually doles out justice. Uh, they, They were economically exploited, slave laborers. He's like, I'm going to purchase you out of that bondage. Uh, There were socially, the families were destroyed, destroyed families through all of these generations. He says, I'm going to be that father for this entire nation. Spiritually, he, he redeems them as well. They're unable to worship the Lord. They don't know God. They don't get to know God. They don't understand him and his ways. They're, they're always building things for these gods that are in opposition to him. And he says, I'm going to bring you out into the desert and you will worship me. A full holistic redemption. Uh, for this story, uh, for all Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars, this is the story of the Old Testament. It is the gospel story. Uh, For us as Christians, we think about Good Friday and Easter as like the pinnacle. That's what Passover is. It It explains who God is, what he's done, but also how they became saved. And so this is what God is weaving in to this very meal that they're to celebrate year over year. Who is God? He's the redeemer. Year over year, Uh, Good years, bad years. There were years where they were still in the desert. There were years where they had famines. There were years where they were at war, even with one another. There were times uh, where there was no food to go around. There were times when they were in exile and nobody cared about what they believed. There were times where they were divided against each other, but year over year, they had this meal and they would remember, right, the Lord is a redeemer, Year over year, they would gather together, they would have the the roasted meat, they would sit down with their sandals on and their staff ready, expecting all of that stuff, and they would remember, that's right, we are the redeemed people. We're not in bondage anymore. Year after year, generation after generation, they would tell the story to their children as they ate the meal, and they would know, oh right, he doesn't just redeem us metaphorically, it is a holistic redemption. Year after year, they would enter into those seven days of eating uh, unleavened bread for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they would say, that's right, his redemption can come quickly. We should be ready for it. So they did this for generation after generation, learning that every bondage, uh, uh, learning as they did that, that bondage in Egypt wasn't the only bondage you can live under. You don't have to have chains and hard labor to be enslaved. Uh, They realize that they're enslaved to sin, to the tyrant of evil, that they're under the spell of death. And the prophets began to proclaim of of an even better redeemer, a future redeemer, a servant king who's going to take away all of the things that are broken. 
He's going to purchase it back. He will be that kinsman protector, that champion for all, and he's going to usher in not just a local Passover where a few people are brought into freedom, but it will be for all people. Talks about this, that the, this kinsman redeemer is going to gather all of the nations together on a mountain, and they will know God, and God will know them. So that gets baked into the Passover meal as they do this for like a thousand years. And then on the night of, with Jesus and his disciples, you know, they get this borrowed room, they, they get a lamb, uh, they get together, it was roasted, the smell of that roasting had filled the city of Jerusalem, and they have this meal, and they're grabbing the wine, and Jesus picks it up, and he says, this is my blood. I'm the Passover lamb that leads to freedom. He picked up the unleavened bread, and he said, this is my body. Hope has come through me. You will like have it all. He's saying to them and that meal as they're taking, as they're eating, I'm the redeemer. I'm the perfect lamb that was slain to bring about a holistic freedom. Death won't know you. Why? Because hanging over you is the blood shed by Jesus smeared onto that cross and in his death. Evil will not have the last say because his body is raised to full life that all get to eat and be satisfied. I'm the kinsman redeemer, he says in this moment, who brings you out of bondage. Passover is now changed forever. How do you get freedom? It's only through Jesus. Lastly, the early church took this meal and really enjoyed it every Sunday They got together, and they had bread, and they had wine, and lots of other things. So much so that they began to be called love feasts. And people on the outside were like, I don't know what happens when they all get together in that house, but it's loud, it's happy, there's all sorts of people from every part of society getting together, and they hang out a lot. And this was happening in a time where people work seven days a week. And they were like scattered all over the Roman Empire. They would work really hard every day, surviving. And then on Sunday night, they would get together and have this incredible feast where they would, in the end, take the bread and the wine and they would remember who Jesus was, that he was the redeemer of all things. It was such a big party, like, that some of them would even get out of hand. That's why in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, they're told how to not get drunk too soon. Like, hey, you can't drink the wine that soon. you got to wait for other people to show up, and then you can share the wine. You're drinking too much because you're not sharing. All of these rules, because why? At the center of the Christian faith, for over 100 years, was the basic practice of we get together, we have a meal, we drink wine, and we eat bread, and we remember that we are the redeemed people. And the world around them was surprised that anybody could be part of this feast. It wasn't by how you're born. It wasn't by your history. It was just by Jesus. And they were amazed at how, like, they could see Christ in it. And it's actually in these meals that they share, you see this in Acts 2, that they were doing this so regularly that that was the main way that people came into the faith, was through these meals. It was a driver of the mission of God. So communion, this feasting, It's an act of declaring Christ's mission to redeem all things. And so we're going to take communion now.
Uh, and it's up front today. And there's one goblet, one juice. Hopefully COVID's gone enough for us to do that. And as we take this communion, it's a feast that reminds us who Jesus is, what he's done, uh, the way he's made for us. It's also that how, you know, each MC meal that we have throughout the week, it's a feast too, with expectation, with hope that the Redeemer lives and that God is going to do something great like redeem all things. Uh, and as we come and as we take, we're going to know and we're going re- to remember uh, who we are and live in confidence. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for this meal and this practice. We thank you that it's also uh, commanded for our good and for our benefit. You don't need us uh, to take communion, um, but you tell us to so that we will taste and we will see and we will know uh, that you are good and you've taken us out of all bondage to sin taken us out of the weight of death, um, and you've defeated evil. So as we come and take, I pray that our hearts would be filled with worship. Amen.